Thank you, Praise Band, and thank you, Church. My name is Jeremiah Young, and I am the uh, Director of Campus Ministries at Carson Newman. But before that, uh, I was a student pastor at Manly Baptist Church for almost eight years. And so um, my, my heart was thumping loud when you were talking about Motown Madness. Motown Madness is one of my all-time favorite weekends of the entire year. And let me just let me just brag uh, for just a minute. You have a great student pastor in Jacob. Yes. Um, and next weekend, there's going to be. I already know. I've, I've been praying about Motown Madness. There's going to be a lot of heart change, a lot of lives change. And so when you see Jacob this week, um, whether you're helping out with Motown or not, just do this for me. Just do me a favor. Just t- go up to him and say, "I'm praying for you," and actually do it. Because there's a lot of cool things that are going to happen in a, in a very few short days that God is going to uh, work in amazing, amazing lives, amazing ways. And so as my time at Manly, I was a student pastor, and so I'm familiar with this church, but I've never actually been here. And so uh, I think it's a wonderful opportunity, and I'm so thankful uh, for Jimmy uh, allowing me to uh, to speak here today and preach and and, uh, but I know this church well. I know you're a Bible-believing church. I know missions are very, very important to who you are. And I'm just so thankful for your church and thankful for who you are. Uh, we need churches like you uh, to partner with us at Carson Newman uh, to see lives change in college students, to see students sit on mission uh, in their college years because it's some of the most formative lives, uh, times of their lives. But another reason why I love this church is that uh, you have allowed uh, me to borrow your pastor's wife, and uh, Robin Inman is an amazing woman. Uh, she's an amazing person, and uh, and God um, allowed me to work with her, and uh, and she really helps me do a lot of the things I do, and, and she should take most of the credit, but it, as you know her, she will not. Uh, but she has a heart for college students. She has a heart for young girls to disciple them, send them on mission, and uh, and so I love this church for many, many reasons, but I, uh, like I said, I've been a student pastor. I've been around a lot of places. I grew up uh, in a town right outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and I went to a church, a Community Alliance Church, that looked a lot like this building, and it was fun walking in here because I felt at home. I felt uh, familiar. Uh, our church was, was about this size. It looked very similar, very, very similar setup with the worship band, so I just was able to uh, uh, reminisce a little bit about that. But, uh, so I, I was a high school, middle school student in a church like this, and uh, I love my time there. But I, I want to talk to you today about uh, a sermon entitled Just One More. Now, a little bit about me and my family. Uh, I have two girls. Uh, I'm a girl dad, uh, eight and almost five, uh, growing on 15, uh, as you know, with, with young girls. Uh, but being a girl dad has been a blessing in my life. But kids have this phrase Teenagers may have it too, uh, but it may be a little different context. But here's the phrase. It's something along the lines of this. Oh, Dad, can I just one more minute? Or can I have one more sweet? And the answer is always no, right? Can I have just one more this, just one more that? Then it changes depending on the context, right? And if you have kids or have been around kids long enough to know, it starts with the ask. It starts with the question. Then it goes to another level, and that's the beg part. Oh, please, Dad, just one more. My, my wife is 
her dad is Tony Buchanan. He's a pastor of Manly, and, uh, and she has this lower lip that she does where she pokes out that lower lip and gets anything she wants from her dad. And somehow, some way or another, it's transferred to me where she can do that, and I give her whatever she wants. But <laughs> young children do that, too. They put out the lip, and they start to beg and plead. And then the third stage, my least favorite stage of all the stages, they get on the floor and cry, and, t- and it's a temper tantrum, and it goes bad. And, but those are the stages. So they, they want one more of something, and they go from asking to begging to crying, and it's just, it's just a theatrical production. And so the reason I bring that up is today, I, when we read Luke chapter 15, now some of you are, are especially the students in here, are going, is he going to read the whole chapter? No, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to reference the entire chapter. Because here's, here's what I believe in reading this scripture. This is a three-pack of stories that are meant to be read together. And we're very, very familiar with one, and we've heard maybe the other two, but as we read this together, we're going to see that the heart of God, the heart of Jesus is just one more, but it's a little different than the way kids act. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Uh, I'm going to read just a few verses, and then we're going to pray over our time, and then we'll, we'll walk through this text. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home... He calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray this morning at this great church, at this great opportunity, God, that we would hear from you. We would read your words. We would hear from the Holy Spirit. And God, we would see your heart for the lost. And we see Jesus sharing the story. And God, that we would have a heart for the lost. That we would seek one more. We would cry out to you. And we would rejoice at the life change that happens. And we would rejoice at the one who repents and believes. And we would rejoice and move on to one more. And seek one more. And as we read this par- these parables and read this story that we understand, God, that this is your heart, this is your drive, this is your desire, and that it would be the desire of our hearts in our lives to seek out one more. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 15, uh, uh, G. Campbell Morgan says it's one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible. It's a beautiful illustration of what God desires, but it comes at an interesting time. See, Jesus, as we see in, the, in verse 1, people are drawn to Jesus. And he's drawing in a, an immense crowd. But the Pharisees and scribes have an issue with this crowd. Why? Are there religious people in this? Absolutely. Are there Jews in this context? Absolutely. But it's the ones that they label in verse 1. One and two, the sinners. 
really give them an issue. And we, if, we, if you know anything about the book of Luke, Luke is third uh, in the New Testament. It's one of the, the Gospels, but this, it's written by Dr. Luke to one man. It's written from one man to another man. It's written by Luke to a man named Theophilus. Now Luke is retelling the story of who Jesus is and explaining to this man Theophilus all the things that we've seen and heard, and this is who Jesus is. Luke spends a lot of time on the marginalized, a lot of time with, with groups of people that aren't often talked about, the sinners. He talks about women an awful lot by name. He talks about different stories and different accounts of these things when other people would leave them out. So Luke has a heart for the marginalized, and he has a heart for the lost. And we see the context of this, and these stories that we see are because the religious of the day are saying that Jesus is associating with the wrong people. He is having dinner with those people. And sometimes when we read the English, we miss the Greek, and there wasn't parenthetical statements, but this word sinners was actually, it would have air quotes today. This is sinners as they labeled them. This was a name given to these people because of what they had done, what they had participated in. We don't know anything about their background, but these are the people that everybody talked about. These are the people that everybody whispered about when they came into a room. These are the people that if they walked in, had a story that followed them. And Jesus, in response to their grumbling, let me pause there. The Old Testament has a lot of grumbling. The New Testament has a lot of grumbling. And unfortunately, it's, a, it's from the people of God. And the people who thought they were of God were grumbling about Jesus associating with those people. And verse 3 says, he told them, this parable. Now he actually tells them three parables. He tells them the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal or the lost son. And we have these, I call these a three pack. They all go together to illustrate what God is trying to communicate. But in a few chapters later, the whole, in my opinion, the whole driving force of the book of Luke comes in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And it says this For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. How many of you in the room remember the story of Zacchaeus? Anybody? Okay. How many of you could sing the song right now? I saw a hand go right up when I say it, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was... Yeah, there you go. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 is after that story of Zacchaeus. Remember who Zacchaeus was. He wasn't just a wee little man, right? He was a tax collector, now, we read tax collector and think April 15th, right? Tax collectors in these days were a little bit more sinister than the IRS, right? Okay, I'm not saying this IRS is sinister. That was, it was supposed to be a joke. Um, but the tax collectors were people that betrayed their own country and took money from others and pocketed the extra, right? So another foreign government, foreign power came in, and this was the guy that said, hey, I'll be on your side, and I'll take the money from people who don't have it, or I'll take money from people, and they could determine what the wages were, and whatever was owed to the government, and whatever was left over, they pocketed. Okay, so they were betrayers, and that's who Zacchaeus was, and right after that, we see the point of why Jesus came for the Son of Man to seek and to save the lost. But before I get into these stories, before I get into these parables, I want to point out three Word, four words that are very, very important. The first one is lost. 
W.A. Criswell said, loss is one of the most tragic words in the Bible. So if you're reading with me in your Bible or you're on your phone and you're okay with, I know some people are, are kind of particular, but I'm an underliner, I'm a highlighter in my Bible. So whenever you see the word loss on your phone or on your written copy of God's word, maybe circle it, maybe highlight it because it's very important. The second one is, law, is uh, I'm sorry, found. The third important word is repent. And the fourth important word is rejoice or joy. So let's start reading by the, the first story that we covered, the lost sheep. Look what it says in verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred shepherd, a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he found it? The idea of sheep and shepherd is a very familiar uh, analogy for Jesus, right? He, he sees the people and, and sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Psalm 23 is all about the good shepherd. We are familiar with this terminology, and we know, especially in a church like this, who the shepherd is and who the sheep are. I've said for years, and I've heard it said many times, sheep are some of the dumbest animals on the planet, okay? They easily get lost, and they need somebody to guide them in order to survive, in order to live, which is why there's a shepherd. So Jesus tells these three parables. Now, what's interesting is we're, we're reading them in 2022, but these were written and stated in the first century. And everybody were familiar with sheep and shepherds. Not many of us in here are familiar with those terms or those things. But we are familiar with stuff, right? We all have stuff. We all have possessions, okay? So imagine the story is talking about stuff, talking about possessions. The second one, the lost coin, is about money. We're all familiar with money. Now, these are universal things, no matter if you're 12 or 112 in the room, okay? No matter how old you are, you understand about money. The third one has to do with family or close loved ones, right? So as we're reading these stories, as we're reading these parables that Jesus is telling to illustrate a point, don't get lost in the first century terminology if you have to translate it to today. So what, among you, what man among you having a 100 sheep, okay? All those sheep were worth some kind of money or had some kind of possession to the shepherd, right? And there were a 100 of them. And the story goes, verse 5, or at the end of verse 4, one is lost, he, does he not leave the 99 in the open country? Now some people say this is reckless, this is uh, not smart of the shepherd, but think about it this way. Let's say you're a shepherd, and people know you have 100 sheep, and you come back from your journey and only have 99, right? It's like being a student pastor, like Jacob, he goes to camp, Takes 100 kids, comes back with 99. <laughs> right? That would never happen to Jacob, I'm just saying. What would be said? He was irresponsible. He wasn't a good shepherd. He didn't take care of all of them, right? So he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Remember the context of what's going on here. The Pharisees are saying, Jesus, why are you hanging out with those people? And he tells his story to say, I'm going after the one. Right? Look what it says in verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. There's that word. What happens when he finds it? He rejoices. But let's talk about the sheep for a minute. Let's talk about how it got there. Warren Wiersbe says, the sheep was lost due to foolishness. It got lost on its own. It wandered off. It went away from the herd. 
And let me tell you, if you're in the room today and you may have wandered, you may be lost. Here's what this story tells me. You're never too far gone for God. Unfortunately, in this world that we live in and in the world that we read this story in, sometimes we rank sins. Sometimes we think sins have a numerical value to where if you've done blank, you are too far. You're a sinner. You're a tax collector. And what he's saying here is, it doesn't matter how you got there. I'm coming after you. We serve a God who seeks. We serve a God who comes after us. We serve a God who says, you're never too far gone. Too far gone. I'm coming to get you. Just as a shepherd leaves the 99 that are safe, that he knows where they are. He's not being reckless. He's not being careless. He's pursuing the one and going after the lost sheep. The sheep had lost its way and had no way to find where to get back to the, to the herd. There's no way out. But the shepherd goes after the sheep. And what happens when he gets back, he rejoices. Look at verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, there's that word again, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now this is kind of a sarcastic statement. Because we know that in order to have a relationship with God, we need repentance. But what he's saying is there's a group of people in the room, not in here, but in the context of the story, that think they have it all together, that think they're self-righteous, don't need repentance. They've earned their, their keep by being religious. They've earned their keep by following these sets of rules. And Jesus is saying, no, I require repentance. I require faith. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. I don't know what uh, baptism services look like or what services look like when, when you have people who accept Jesus in that, that time or that sermon. But I imagine it's, it's like what happens at Manly sometimes. When we hear that someone has given their life to Christ, the whole place goes crazy. Right? That's why I love Motown. I know I've talked about it a lot, but it's just, it's just contextual where we are. We always see life change during Motown. And imagine what that student, imagine what that adult, imagine what that child experiences when they know they've made a life-changing decision and the church goes crazy. We need more churches like this. We need more churches like that that rejoice when the one comes. Second story, verse 8, the parable of the lost coins. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? There's money, right? She has 10 silver coins. Now, there's a couple ways we can interpret this. And I, I don't really stick to one as being the only way we can interpret it. They both work. Okay, The first one is just the numerical value. We understand money, 10 silver, silver coins. Um, the context of what we read with this word of the Greek, this is like a day's wage. Okay, Which back in this day may have been a coin. Today it may be a certain numerical value for whatever it is. And she has 10 of them. And loses one. So it's, it's very important, right? Palestinian houses were very dark. They didn't have electricity. They had lamps. And so it was easy to lose things. It wasn't like misplacing your phone 
right? It was dark in the house, so you had to sweep. You had to uncover things to get to it. The second interpretation is this, and I find this very interesting. When a Jewish woman was married, she was given a, 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 a headband that had ten rings on it, or ten coins, I'm sorry. And so for her to lose one would be dishonoring, and it would be uh, careless. The coin was lost due to carelessness. And maybe this is an illustration of someone who just says, you know what? It's not that I don't feel worthy enough for God. I just don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Look at what happens in verse 8. If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek it diligently until she finds it. So there's, it's lost and she goes to look for it. Look in verse 9. And when she found it, she calls together her friends, we've heard this before, and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These two are very similar stories. But they hit on two different points, which is why I think they need to be shared together. Okay, The sheep got itself into that predicament. The sheep got lost. The sheep was foolish the coin on the other hand was lost so we understand that there is this idea that lostness may be our it's it's always everyone comes into the world lost all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god we we know that but sometimes there are situations where people get into that situation and they become more and more lost or they're just lost because they haven't been found yet there's some theological doctrinal things in here that he's trying to illustrate to say doesn't matter how, but they're lost. They need to be found, right? And she seeks out this coin. Again, we see a God who seeks, God who comes after. Jesus who says, what does she do? She takes a lamp and she sweeps. She works diligently over and over again until she finds it. And then when she does... She celebrates like we saw before. But there's an interesting statement here that's in verse 10 that's not in any other part of the scripture. Just so I tell you, there is joy. I told you that word joy would be very important. Before the angels of God. Now, where's the joy coming from? Let me read you a quote from John MacArthur. And I think this is really, really good. John MacArthur believes that this joy is the joy of God himself. And it illustrates this idea. God is not the one keeping books. He's he's not interested in keeping the books of who's in and who's out. It's God weeping over the lost and exalting over the found. Sometimes we see God as this big, powerful man in the sky who is just having this book in, in front of him about who's in and who's out. No, God rejoices in the midst of the angels when one comes to faith. God wants us. God seeks us. And just in the same way as the woman in this story rejoices, so does God, and so should we. Here's the thing that I think this story tells us. We should never give up in helping the lost become found. We should never give up. When I've preached this story before, when I've preached this this text, I, I have several stories in my own life of people I know, and you may know the same. But one comes to mind about a wife who prayed for her husband for 30 years. She was a believer. She was actively involved in church, but her husband just was not. It was just not a part of his life. And she prayed and prayed and prayed. And I can imagine there were days when she felt like she was prayed out. 
I can imagine there were times where she felt like she wanted to give up. I can imagine there were times when she wanted to throw in the towel. But God said, don't give up on him yet. Don't give up. I don't know a lot of you in this room, but I know there may be people in here who have someone who they know personally you've been praying for, maybe for a short time, maybe for a long time. Maybe you came in here today and you just want to give up. You just want to throw your hands up. In this story, the woman diligently tries to find this lost coin. What's the funny thing about lost things? It's always what? The last place you look. Keep trying. Don't give up. And realize at the same time, too, if you're in the room today, God has not given up on you. Hear me, hear me out. God has not given up on you. You can't sin enough. You can't be lost enough. You can't be far enough because he's still looking. He's still seeking. He's still coming after you. But this is why the third part of the story is so important. And I myself have done this where I've only preached the prodigal son. But I think if we miss the leading up to it, we miss the whole point. It's not just about the son that returned. It's about the father who's waiting for the son. So let's read. We're not going to read the whole parable because it's quite lengthy. But look in verse uh, 11. There was a man who had two sons. Very, very important. The prodigal son normally gets all the credit, but there are two involved. That's why he says it at the very beginning. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Let me pause there. So back in that day, the older son received more inheritance and the younger son received less, right? When the father died, it was normally two to, th- two to one, okay? So the older son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance, the younger son would, would, would receive one. But that was only when the father died. And so the younger son goes to the dad and basically says this, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my money now. And he wants to go use it for whatever he wants to use it for. Now, for those of you dads in the room like myself, we start to wonder what we would do in this situation. Regardless of what we would do, the father gives him what he wants. Now, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. This is probably every parent's biggest nightmare. That their children would get what they wanted in more ways than one. Before we go on, isn't that us sometimes? Isn't that you and me that we ask God for things or we think we know what's best for us and then we end up getting it and we realize it wasn't what we wanted? Warren Wearsby says this son was lost because of willfulness. He willingly walked away. So when we combine these three parables together, and I'm not going to get into the, the, the debate, but I'm just saying, okay, I'm just pointing out what the Scripture says. The first two parables have to do with the God who seeks, right? and we're going to see later the God who waits, but this is more about the sinner who repents. Man's part in turning and hitting rock bottom and turning to God. So let's keep reading. Verse 16, no, verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to feed pigs. 
remember the context of where he is. He's talking to a primarily Jewish audience. And feeding pigs would be just unheard of. Being around those unclean animals. And look, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So he literally was feeding pigs and eating their food. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Let me pause there. The younger son gets exactly what he wanted, and he went out and spent it on whatever he wanted. We all know too well in the world that we live in that there are opportunities for us, for students, for college students, for young adults, whatever, to live a life that is not honoring to God. And I have to tell you, when I was studying for this sermon, listen, I don't want you to think for a moment that I'm preaching this as some holier-than-thou person who has this all figured out, because I do not. And it can be easy when working with anybody, but in my context, working with young adults, to say, why would they do that? Why would they make those decisions? Why would they go there? Why would they participate in that? And I forget this context to say, I shouldn't be so concerned with their sin. I should be concerned with their lostness. I shouldn't be so concerned with what they're doing because you know what? We can't expect those who are lost to act like we act, right? But I should be more concerned about having them found. But we know what this looks like, and we know the things that he did. We can just assume where he spent his money. But as we know, with money, it ran out, and he had none. He had experienced all the things that the world had to offer. We don't know how much money he was given, but he had enough to go squander it on the things of the world with reckless living. If you look up this word in the Greek, it's the only time we have it explained. And so we don't know exactly what this entails, but we know he was living a life outside of what God intended for him to do. And he gets to the point where he hits rock bottom. I don't want to go there, but sometimes rock bottom is the best place for someone who is lost. I, I don't wish that upon anybody. I hope that people don't have to experience that. But we see a point in this story, in this parable, where he says, this is not what I want anymore. I don't want to live this life that I'm living now. I need to go to my father, and what does it say? Repent of my sin. As we talked about before, we see this whole idea in each and every story of repentance. I think repentance is an enormous part of the Christian walk. What is repentance? It's literally turning directions. It's exactly what happens in this story. I'm going after the life that I want, that I can live, that I think is best for me. And realizing at some point it's not what God has intended. It's not enough. It's never going to fill that void in my life, in my soul. I'm never going to be happy. I'm never going to be satisfied. I realize now that this was not worth it. Repentance is just a, is just a super churchy, biblical word to say, I'm done with this, I'm going that way. I'm walking in a way that I want to follow God. I'm returning from, I'm leaving that behind, and I'm going back to my Father. The story gets better. 
verse 18 and 19, he just rehearses. I love that we get this, this part because this is exactly, if I were in this situation, how I would do. I don't know if anybody else is like that, but I'm, I always rehearse in my head how things are going to go, good or bad. And he's talking in his head about how he's going to do this. In verse 20, when he arose and came to his father, pause right there. I want you to remember, I want to remind you, I was reading one uh, commentary that said, remember where he had just left, right? He had no money, he had no place to live, he had nothing. He had a job where he was feeding pigs. What do we know about pigs? They're what? Dirty and stinky. And he was literally not just with the pigs, he was in where they were eating. He was eating their food, he was eating their stuff. Sometimes in the biblical text we forget some of our extra sensory, sensory things. Imagine the smell. Imagine the filth. Imagine him walking up and what the father sees and here's the best part if i can keep it together for this we'll be okay look but while he was still a long way off his father saw him he never gave up on him he was on the front porch he was waiting for him to return and while he was still a long way off his father saw him and felt compassion and ran he got up and he went after him. God will come after you if you will repent. If you will turn from this life and go to the next, go to the life that's better, that he died for, that he came to this earth to give you. And look what happens when we remember the smell, when we remember the filth, he embraced him and kissed him. Listen to me. Jesus is in front of a bunch of religious leaders who are saying, why are you with these sinners? And he's saying the Father comes after them and embraces them and kisses him. Doesn't matter the smell, doesn't matter where they've been, doesn't matter who they are, he comes after them. But not here, but church is very far, far away. What do we do? Oh, we're not going to associate with those people. We know what they've done, we know where they've been, we know what they, whatever it is. And Jesus says God runs to them. He embraces them as a father to a lost son. He holds him in his arms and he kisses him. And then if the father said to him, and then the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand, the shoes on his feet. He didn't feel worthy and and the story goes that the father didn't care. He celebrated. Verse 24. For this son, the whole story wrapped up in verse 24 and 32. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. He was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now is found. But here's where the story takes a drastic turn. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, tragic. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, and let me, let me pause right here once again. I've been the older son many times in my life. Let me just tell you. Let me just be honest and transparent. 
because listen to what he says. Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, this is what the son says, the dad says in response, son, you are always with me, and now all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother was what? Dead and is alive, he is lost and is found. That's the heart of the story. The father never gave up on waiting for the son to return. So here's what I want to do today. You may be in the room today and you feel like you're too far gone. You're not. You're never too lost. There's not too much sin that you can do. and There's not too much thing that you can be a part of that you're too far gone for God. Whatever you are running from, whatever you're running to, whatever if, if you're running away from mom and dad, if you're running to this that you think is going to fulfill your life, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, you're never too far gone to turn around. And this morning, in this place, right now, you can repent, you can change direction, and say, God, I know I've messed up, but I know you love me. And sent your son to die for me. The, the son, Jesus, who's sharing this story. Let me tell you what happens at the end of this story. In a few short chapters, he dies on a cross. Where you and I deserve to go for our sin. And he died, paid the punishment for our sins on our behalf. The Bible says, he made him who knew no sin. Jesus was without sin to be sin on our behalf so we can have the righteousness of God. He paid it on our behalf. And rose again the third day to give us eternal life. If you would just believe in him, you will have life eternal. You can do that today. The second thing is this. Maybe you're a believer in the room. And I go back to that story about children, about how we think, how we are. Children are very easy to ask for one more, one more, one more, one more. Maybe we should start asking more. Maybe we should start praying more. Maybe we should start begging and pleading more. Maybe we should start crying out more. Maybe you're in the room today and there's someone who's close to you but far from God. Maybe you're in the room today and you're more like the prodigal than you are like anything else. But there's two invitations today. The band's going to come up and sing one more song. And the two invitations are this. It's very simple. You need to repent and turn back to God. Or maybe the second one is this. There's someone in your life who's close to you but far from God that you need to pray for this morning. So if I understand correctly and if I mess this up, I apologize. To the right, if you want to pray on your own. Well, whatever is going on, whatever is in your life, you can pray here. To my left, on this side you want to have somebody pray with you, if you want to share what God's doing in your heart, if you want to repent and believe in Jesus, you can do that over here and talk with somebody about it. So as we sing, some of us are praying, and some of us are doing things in our seats, and some of you may be doing things up here. Let's just remember this, that maybe just one more will come to faith in Jesus. Maybe not today. Maybe it'll be this week. Maybe it'll be this weekend. Maybe it'll be this year. We'd be a church, we'd be a men and women of God who wouldn't stand opposed, stand apart from people and say, look at what Jesus is doing with those people. We would say, I want those people to believe.
I want people in my life to be that just one more. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to ask. I'm going to pray. I'm going to beg. I'm going to plead. I'm going to do whatever it takes for them to know who Jesus is. Let me pray and then we'll sing.